0: Dance up here, up here, I'm sure y'all glad about that, No, I am, but uh, here we go, anyways, tonight we're in Genesis uh, 12, uh, while you're getting your handouts out, I want to kind of trace where we're at in redemptive history and what's going on up until now. Um, Genesis 1 and 2, God creates the world, uh, he says it's good, creation is good, earth is good, to work is good. Um, He creates man, and man is very good. Uh, He puts man in the Garden of Eden, perfect paradise. Uh, One simple thing he's got to do is not eat of the fruit. In other words, he's got to trust that God knows what's best for him uh, and and lean on God's understanding and not his own. But naturally, man, he does like we do today. Uh, And Adam eats of the fruit, and man falls. Uh, And the curse that was supposed to go along with eating that fruit um, you got a question? You yeah, good? Cool. Um, the curse that was supposed to go along with eating that fruit was death, uh, and and so in some ways God was gracious to man that He didn't instantly put us to death, but that instead uh, He let us stay alive. But that wasn't as far as His grace went. He also gave this promise. He said, "I will put enmity between you, sin, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." God, even after our first sin, in in the immediate throes of sin, makes this promise that offspring will come from the line of Adam uh, that will redeem the world, that will save the world. So we go on and and we find the impact of sin uh, in history and and in people's lives and and in creation uh, starts to get bigger. So that by Genesis 4, not only are we just kind of saying, well, God, I want to eat the fruit, and you don't want me to eat the fruit, but we've got people murdering other people. Uh, sin's impact is growing uh, and spreading. Uh, but, but even through that and, and throughout the early chapters of Genesis, God preserves uh, this one line, this one family of people through whom uh, seed is going to come, which will redeem the world, uh, which will save the world. Uh, And so it gets down to Genesis 6, 7. The world's really corrupt. We've been over all this. I'm doing it quick. Uh, It's so corrupt that God's got to wipe almost everything out in order to save any of it. So he sends the flood. But he saves Noah, who is a descendant of Seth, who is the descendant of Adam, through whom God had promised to redeem the world. Uh, God is preserving this line. Uh, So then we get down, and we're in, like, Genesis 11. We get these, uh, we get the Tower of Babel which is another example of mankind kind of shaking their fist at God. And then we get this genealogy, um, a list of, of people coming from this man Shem and coming all the way down to this guy Terah, who had three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Uh, and it's, it's through this line, it's tracing this lineage that is the lineage that God has said, I'm going to send somebody from this line to redeem the world, uh, to save us from our sins. Uh, So that's where we're at uh, as we get to this chapter 12 of Genesis, uh, and we're going to read verses 1 through 9. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarah his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the Oak of Moreh. At that time the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, Your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would teach us from this word about how you're faithful to your promise. Uh, I pray that you would show us how you set out to redeem the world. Uh, In your name we pray. Amen. I wonder if you get a sense from the brief history of the world that I just gave you um, about the situation that mankind has gotten himself into uh, in this passage. Uh, Really what you need to see here is that actually the last little bit of civilization and hope on the earth is about to be snuffed out. These are really dark and desperate times. Man has kept getting more corrupt. Uh, he's fell further and further from the original uh, Garden of Eden and, and the goodness of that time. And, and now he, he's at this point where uh, there's one family left in the entire earth that has some knowledge of God. One family on the entire earth. Uh, and, and that's the family of the genealogy that we have right here. And, and, and the thing about this family is Uh, These people that supposedly possess the knowledge of salvation uh, by God's grace uh, Their knowledge is even dim If you look at the guy, Abram's dad's name is Terah Terah means moon Uh, And and the thing about this, the way he gets that name Is that they were living in the city called Ur of the Chaldeans And in the city of Ur of the Chaldeans uh, They worshipped the moon god Uh, whose name was Terah. So he's literally named after an idol that his family has begun worshiping. Uh, Here's the hope that God has promised in this line and it's about to be it's about to go out. Man is about to lose the knowledge of redemption. It's not just that they're pagans though that's a problem. Also we start to see that uh, Terah and his son Abram uh, his, his son Abram marries Sarah and in chapter 11, verses 30, we see that she had no child. She was barren. In other words, they're getting old and no kids coming. And it's like, okay, God, you promised through the seed of this family to to send the man that would redeem the world, that would crush the head of sin, like you said in uh, Genesis 3. Uh, And nothing's there. Nothing's coming. Uh, It's dark. Uh, I think like, if we here at USC felt like well, there's, there's maybe, if there were one family of Christians at USC on a campus of, you know, 20,000, uh, we would feel pretty hopeless and desperate and like, where is God? Is he even working here? Uh, what is he doing? And so you can kind of get the sense of how, what that world must have been like. Of there's very little hope, uh, no hope for the redemption of sin uh, in our lives. And it's at this moment in world history when everything is darkest, when it's when it's almost night uh, that God speaks into his creation Uh, the same God that made the creation good uh, that made man very good is once again going to show that he's passionately committed to returning it to good to making it like it was to making it new again see mankind had really continued in the sin of the garden of Eden uh, we were still saying, Lord, instead of doing what you're going to tell me to do, I'm going to do what I want to do. I know what's best. I'm going to eat the fruit of the tree. Lord, instead of loving people, I'm going to murder them like Cain murdered Abel. Lord, I'm going to build a tower and stay in one place instead of filling the earth and subduing it. Uh, Lord, I'm, I'm really shaking my fist at you. I know what's best for me. I don't trust you to tell me what's best for me. And, and, and we got to really see that Abram, Uh, The person who's being called here is right there doing the same thing. Uh, Abram is not a good guy, okay? I know for a fact that he did not follow the Ten Commandments, partially because they didn't have the Ten Commandments yet. Uh, He's a bad guy, okay? He's literally, he's going to the the temple of the moon god every day, okay? He's fulfilling the rituals. He's a pagan. He's a bad man. He's a man that's going to go and whore out his wife to the Egyptians to save his life one day. He's a bad guy. He's continuing in the sin of mankind in Eden, and and really, what he's doing is he's looking for a way, just like everyone else on the earth, of covering up that that hole that we feel as a result of sin, that sense of alienation. Uh, Abram is going to his moon god. We know that he's he's rich, uh, so he's probably seeking after material possessions uh, in an effort to fill in the sense of alienation that he feels from God. But I want you to see that as God reaches into Abram's life. Uh, It's not a question of Abram's worthiness that makes God call him. That says here, that allows God to say, I'm going to redeem you. Uh, I'm going to pursue you in relationship. It has nothing to do with how good Abram is. But instead, it has everything to do with the fact that God promised from Genesis 3 on to redeem the world, to send the seed of this line to redeem the world. The promise rests in who God is and not who Abram is. Um, we, we don't really get this uh, in our life. When, uh, when we think about God calling us, I think oftentimes we think, well, he calls us because of something good that we've done uh, or, or who we are, that we're a good person, and that, that somehow gives us a relationship with Jesus uh, and that, that we will be redeemed through that. Um, the reason I know that we don't believe that it's because of God and his promise that we're redeemed and not because of ourselves is because like some of us are really bold and confident in ways that we shouldn't be, and others of us are really quiet and insecure in ways that we shouldn't, shouldn't be. Let me flesh that out for you. Um, I was talking to a student last year, uh, and he told me that he was confronted by this uh, staff member by, from another campus ministry. Uh, and the staff member said, gave him this diagram of a football field. And he said, in the end zone is a perfect relationship with God. Okay? In the end zone is a perfect relationship with God. Now, where would you put yourself in terms of the relationship? What yard line are you on? Uh, and I'm, I, I don't remember exactly what he said. I'm, I'm guessing it was something like the 20. Okay? You know, and I was thinking, you know, like, the 20 going in. So he's in the red zone. He's in scoring position. And I'm thinking, like, uh, that means different things to different people, first off. Like, if you're a Bama fan and you're on the 20, like, there's probably like an 85% chance you're going to have a perfect relationship with God one day. Like, you're probably getting in there. You're a Carolina fan on the 20. <laughs> you need to pray a lot more than you're praying. <laughs> and there's like a 50% chance you're going straight to hell. <laughs> there's like a 50% chance. And you're turning the ball over and going the other direction. Okay, and that sounds really humble to say I'm not in the end zone with God. It sounds really humble to say, well, my relationship is not really perfect. It's not where I want it to be. Um, Yeah, I'm a Christian, and I know that God saves me, and God calls me independent of what I do, but in terms of how I relate to Him on a daily basis, it's not really where I want it to be. It's not exactly perfect. Uh, I'm kind of on the 20. But in the end, uh, it's not humility. That's not true godly humility. Because what it's doing is it's actually relying on our sense of worthiness, on our accomplishment of religious works, uh, to make us feel worthy to God. Um, it's actually arrogant. Because what it says is, well, I, I haven't prayed enough, and I haven't read my Bible enough, and I haven't done enough quiet times. so my relationship with God isn't like perfect. But if I did do that enough, maybe it would be. If I did those things enough, maybe it would be. Uh, We're really resting at that point in time on our own worthiness instead of on God's call and God's promise in our lives. Um, If we believed in Jesus and that his works are the things that make us acceptable, and if we believed in God's sovereign ability to choose us and call us into relationship with himself, we would be able to confidently say, yes, I'm a Christian and I'm in the end zone. I am in the end zone, as cheesy as it sounds. My relationship with him is perfect because it does not rest on what I do. It does not rest on the religious things that I accomplish, but instead it, re- it rests on the truth of God's promise and his call on my life. Even though I am unworthy, God called me, and in that I'm safe and secure. But there's another way you can, you can know that we don't really believe uh, that it's God's Paul that makes us secure and redeemed in him uh, and that's that we're we're too confident and what I mean by that is that the, these, these are the people that they do read their Bible uh, they do have their quiet times they do pray they do good deeds every now and then they don't drink they don't smoke they don't get tattoos uh, they're good they're good people right and they're confident that they're a Christian they're confident that they're called by God not because of God's promise, but because they have a, quote, higher moral standard than everybody else. Uh, I encourage you, if if you tend towards this, like all of us do in some ways, to really confront the God of Genesis 12 that calls an Abram that doesn't know anything about the Ten Commandments, that has nothing to do with how good Abram is, has nothing to do with the family that he came from. Uh, Be confronted by that, and I think it, it really does humble you because it makes you see uh, that it does not rest on your religious works and that your religious works add nothing to you. I I really, I I do get tired of this idea that's like, that's out there that, well, I don't hang out with the people in my dorm or whatever because uh, they're not Christians and, and we don't get along because I have a higher moral standard than them. Uh, Abraham was the first Christian, and he worshiped the moon God, okay? <laughs> it's like, you are not a Christian because you do good things. You're a Christian because God called you, because God called you to be redeemed. We've got to bring our proud hearts to Scripture on this one, guys. And we've got to really realize that it's, it's God who is good, that it's God who keeps his promises, and that it's God who blesses unworthy people like us. His promises, his blessings, his call are so gracious. They're rooted in his promise to save the world uh, and not in our worthiness. So God speaks to an unlovable idiot, pagan, moon-worshipping Abram, who didn't deserve it. And the question is, what did he say? That's question number two. He says this. He says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He's really looking down at, at Abram and going, You, I want you. I'm calling you. I'm calling you to get up from your country, your physical surroundings, where you are at the moment. I want you to leave your family. I want you to leave your father's house, which would have been a sense, a sign of security in that day. His father would have been on earth longer. He'd have a longer time to accrue wealth. Uh, so, God is in a lot of ways saying, like, get up and leave your sense of security. Leave this area of, they're no longer in Ur, they're in Haran, but leave this area that has made you prosperous, that you've succeeded in, and go wander around in the desert for a bunch of years. Uh, and Abraham's like, all right, where are we going? And God's like, I'll tell you later. He's like, God doesn't give him a clue. Uh, I'm not telling you where we're going yet. We've got to realize that, like, This doesn't make sense to anybody, this call. And the things that God calls us to do sometimes do not make sense to anybody. Abraham was a wealthy businessman. He had lots of slaves. We know that from later texts. Um, He was doing really well where he was. And now he's just going to get up and, and go and leave and not have any idea where he's going. And, and to top things all off, like nobody was monotheistic at the time. Okay, so everybody's out here claiming, like, okay, we've got all these gods in different places that are telling us to do different things. And Abraham, not only did Abraham hear a voice in his head or whatever telling him to go wander around in the desert, it was one voice and it was supreme over all the other voices. Okay? It's like, it's, it's almost like this idea of monotheism has become so popular now that we've that we've lost sight of what it was like to have any sort of discussion about uh, monotheism versus polytheism. But now, if somebody came up to you and said, I'm hearing voices that are telling me to do this, these voices are better than your voice, I'm going to go wander in the desert and do exactly what they say. Yeah, we call these people crazy. We call them psychopaths. It's like, nobody in here, when some guy pulls up in a white van outside, and is like, I got some candy if you want to come get in the van. Uh, <laughs> Where are we going? Well, oh, I'll tell you later. You know, it's like, why would I do that? Well, because it's going to be good for you in the end. It's going to be better than where you are. Nobody's getting, nobody's buying that. Okay, that's crazy. It's crazy. Abraham does it. It doesn't make any sense for him. He does it anyways. Uh, God's call really makes Abram start to do things that, to the rest of the world, look ridiculous. They look absolutely crazy. See, the call of God. Has, has changed Abram's life. And, and the reason he could get in the van is because he knew that the driver was the God of the universe. He's The driver, the driver is the one that, that made everything, that knows how the system works. He not only like, made the things that we're chasing after uh, to fill up our longings, but he also made the longings themselves. He understands what we need, he understands our desires, and he understands how to fulfill them. And it's because Abram trusted that it was that God talking to him that he was able to do something so radical uh, and so crazy. When you believe that it is God who restores you, that it's God who redeems you, that it's God who is the answer to all of your longings, who's the fulfillment of your desires, you realize that he could ask of you anything and you would do it because he knows best. You are willing to let God, to all appearances, destroy your life because you know that he understands this world better than you do. I know that we don't believe really that it's God that fulfills and redeems us. Uh, we don't believe that in God we're going to find peace. Uh, we don't believe that He's good, and we don't believe that He has our best interests at heart. Uh, and the reason I know this is because there's kind of competing or competing claims of ridiculousness. On the one hand, we look ridiculous because we claim that we have Christianity. We have the answer. We have the way. We have the truth. We have the life. Jesus is the answer to all the world's problems. If everybody would just trust in him, they would find everlasting truth and peace, and their lives would be changed and redeemed. So we're saying that, and our lives don't change. We say it, and then our lives do not change. Instead, what what we're really doing is we're doing all these religious things in order to uh, soothe the guilt of what happened when we did what we actually wanted to do. Uh, we're, we're kind of hoping that after we've paid all our dues to the God of the universe, there will be some like time for us to kind of do what we want to afterwards. Uh, and, and that's why you see things like pastors having affairs. That's why Christians are cheating on taxes. That's why we're getting drunk. That's why we're lying. That's why the world thinks we are so ridiculous. We're hypocrites because we claim on the one hand to have the answer to redemption, we claim that God has called us and redeemed us. And yet, on the other hand, our lives haven't changed. We haven't changed. Uh, we live as if, okay, if I just get that girlfriend, everything is going to be great. I'll be happy. If I just make money or if I just get good grades, I'll be all right. If I just experience enough physical pleasure, if I, if I just have enough leisure time to do what I want, everything will be fine. I won't feel alienated. I'll be, I'll be set. I'll be redeemed. But we also know that we have to, we're supposed to live to please God. So we feel guilty about living to please ourselves sometimes. In the end, like, we don't even enjoy sinning very well. Like, we, don't, we don't get very much u- utility out of sinning because we're like halfway kind of kowtowing to God and halfway doing what we want. We're not even having any fun sinning. Uh, to the world, we really look ridiculous because we're, we're hypocrites. We're claiming one thing to be true and then living as if it's not. Uh, but the other way I know that, uh, that we're not, that we don't think that it's God that redeems us is because we don't have a godly ridiculousness, uh, the kind of ridiculous that, ridiculousness that we need more of. You can see, in a lot of ways, God calls us to look ridiculous in the culture. He called Abram to do some pretty ridiculous things. Uh, things that the culture would have said, you're absolutely crazy to do. He called him to, to get in the van. He called him to get up and leave and go wander around in the desert. Uh, and he called him to do all that so that he might be a blessing to other people. That so we don't, we don't like that God might make that claim on us, might make us uncomfortable, so we start tuning him out. Uh, and and really, we go to show that we think that our answer to life's pain and life's sense of alienation is not in God's call and God's promise but instead uh, through our own desires. <laughs> I think in a lot of ways, like, college is the most selfish time, uh, and, and maybe where, where this is the most in evidence, because all the choices that you're making, you're making on this, on this one set of principles. Like, I wonder like, why you ended up at USC. You know? Was it because like, it was cheap, or maybe they're gonna pay you money to come here? Was it because they had the degree you wanted? Uh, Was it because it was an easy thing to do? Like, you didn't have to go through all the hard work of applying to all the out-of-state colleges that your mom wanted you to apply to? Do you think you'll get a good job once you graduate from here? The principle behind all those decision-making is that you and serving your needs are what is going to redeem you and make you happy. Uh, it, it It has nothing to do with the fact that God called you to serve the world and serve others, and you thought that maybe... You could do that well here I mean that's why I was here man I was here because I could get Big scholarships and I could be a journalism Major and not do any homework Like that's literally why I was here I was not here I, I never asked myself the question of like Can I serve the kingdom of God at USC uh, Because God's called me And God's made this claim on my life uh, Can I do that Matthew eight twenty 20 uh, tells this story Or not a story but uh, narrates this. It says, Now when Jesus saw a great crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my Father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Uh, what what he's really saying is here is that there's nothing God cannot call us to give up. Uh, he can call us to give up our security, He can call us to give up our family. He can call us to leave our dead father to be buried by somebody else. Uh, he can call us to give up being able to lay our head in a com- in a comfortable place. He, he calls us to surrender the entirety of our will to him so that not just like part of our decision making is changed and not just that like, Sometimes we kowtow to God by doing religious things, and other times we we do our own things so that we will be happy. Uh, He calls us to surrender all of ourselves to him. But, like, somehow we still think we have the right to say things like, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I fully intend to get drunk this weekend. Or, yeah, I'm a Christian, but, and I kind of feel even bad about it, but I'm going to keep making out with my girlfriend. Yeah, I'm a Christian, but I fully intend to study on Sunday. From a test on monday yeah i'm a christian but i fully intend to study not at all we think that god cares about some things and not about other things we're willing to give god some things but in the end we want time and decisions left over for ourselves really we don't look stupid enough that's how i know that we don't trust that it's god that's called us and redeemed us and that he has our best intentions at heart we don't look stupid enough to the culture Like these things, like the girlfriend or the grades or or whatever it is, the alcohol, that's culture's roadmap to making things right with the world. If you just engage in this activity, you'll be happy. And we ignore God's call and saying, if you trust in me and find your fulfillment in me, I will bless you. How ridiculous would you look to people in your dorm if you, like, worked six days a week and rested on the Sabbath? You'd look ridiculous. if you stopped judging them and started loving them, if you started treating your girlfriend like your sister, ew, man, you'd look crazy. You'd look countercultural. You'd look a lot like Abraham did uh, when God called him and because of the claim that God had on Abraham's life as his creator uh, took him out of everything that he knew. We've really fallen prey to this idea that Christianity only speaks to like our spiritual lives. Okay you ask people how they're doing spiritually, they're going to tell you, well, like, I read my Bible and I prayed, so I'm doing pretty well. But really, the true test of how well we're doing spiritually, even though I don't really know what that means, but the true test of the the sentiment of that question is how much of you can say, not my will, not what I want, but what you want, God. Even though I want something different, I'm going to trust and have faith that your call on my life gives redemption to me. That, that you know what's best for me. That's a tre- that's a true test of how of spiritual maturity. If Christianity were just spiritual, God would have just like called Abram and said, Abram, just stay where you are and pray some more you know? and maybe pray to just one God. but instead God took him up, took him out, changed him, changed who he was. Everything about him God made a call to. There's a scene in, in the movie 300. I you know, I used to would have recommended it, but I don't think I do anymore. the second time around. Yeah. Um see the movie 300, the good guys are about to fight the bad guys in, like, the ultimate bat- battle or whatever. And Gerard Butler's standing here in, like, his leather spandex and his spear and kind of standing there like that. And, <laughs> and, and, and he's given delivering this get-hyped line, which is difficult to do in leather underwear standing like that. But what he says to his troops is he says, as they're getting ready to go and fight the enemy, he says, give them, no, no, he says, give them nothing but take from them everything. Like apparently in ancient Greece, everybody speaks with English accents or something. (laughs) If Gerard Butler is to be believed. He says, give them nothing but take from them everything. What he's saying is don't let them surrender, leave them nothing to fall back on, wipe them out completely, take their will from them. And that is exactly what God's call does to us. That's the claim that God has on us. And that is the only way to be a Christian, to give him all of us. God calls us to value his will as supreme over our own in every area of our life. I want to know if you're willing to submit to that. Or do you still find yourself saying, yes, God, I'm a Christian, but I don't want you touching this part of my life. Uh, Meet this God again. Meet the God that says Abram. I'm calling you, and I want you to get up and leave everything. Everything that makes sense, I want you to get up and leave it. And I want you to follow me. God's call and his promises are gracious. God's call and his promises will wreck all of your life. And lastly, this. God promises redemption, and it's going to save the world. God graciously called this pagan, Abram, to submit all of his will to God. But it wasn't just for Abram that God did this. Uh, Abram could probably be forgiven for thinking so. I mean, God says, all right, here you go, Abram. I'm going to give you a bunch of land and uh, a bunch of kids. A, a nation will be made after you. I'm going to protect you from all your enemies. Uh, but the reason he did all of this was not so that Abram could, like, sit in a monastery and, like, hoard all these blessings, you know, and, just, and live on his little, his little Christian island uh, or whatever. The reason he did this was that he's really continuing uh, the, the promise that he made starting in Genesis 3 to redeem not only our relationship with God, uh, but also our relationships with the world and our relationships with other people. Uh, and I want to show how, how that kind of works in this passage. He says, in verses 2 and 3, he says, why did I do it? Well, so that you will be a blessing. And then also, and so that you will be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Uh, he gives us some clues as to how he's going to use Abram to be a blessing. Uh, the first thing he does is he actually gives him land. Okay, God is, gonna, is taking Abram out of, out of his home, but he's going to give him land. Uh, and he's, and he's going to bless the world through it, even though like the Canaanites are probably thinking, not much of a blessing, I got kicked out. Um, but God's going to do it. And it's really rooted in the fact that when God calls you into a relationship with him, it changes your life, including the way in which you work, the way in which you build, the way in which you buy your food, the way in which you give of yourself so that others may have. In other words, this land is going to be inhabited by people who have a right view and a redeemed view of creation. And so the result of this of people that are doing this in this land, living in the way that God calls them to, uh, is, is one in which uh, life is good here, business. Business is good. They're building things well. It's cultivated. The culture is good. They make good music. No more John Mayer in Israel. Um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Jake. <laughs> <laughs> culture will be good. People in this land will, will work and interact with creation in a way that God has called them to originally. And we can kind of see that, like how that's going to work based on where God put them. Okay, uh, at, ga- at first glance, Canaan, not very attractive. All right, desert, scrub trees. Like there's some, there's some uh, there are oasises like with land of milk and honey kind of imagery that we talk, hear about in Joshua. Um, but mostly it's like the desert you see on the nightly news where, you know, people are blowing each other up now. Uh, so God didn't put Abram there in that particular stretch of land uh, because it was beautiful or because it was easy to live in. But instead, he put it there because it was actually a crossroads of the ancient world. It's right there positioned geographically so that anybody from Africa who wanted to get to Asia had to go through Canaan. Uh, Europe, Asia, Africa, Turkey, all of them come together in this area that God has given Abram. And what God wants is for people to see how the men and women that God has called are interacting with their creation, how they're doing their work well. How they're resting on the Sabbath, and he wants to see, and he wants the outside watching world to see uh, the change that that brings to their life, the freedom that they have uh, from the the lies of sin in creation. In the same way, God calls us into a relationship with Himself, so that we can begin to go about the work of doing good things in the creation. You join it, you're called to join the Father uh, as His as His vice president in some ways like the the ruling party here on earth god's representative uh in in things like doing your schoolwork well and righteously so that other people can see you do it uh and they can be freed from the lie that like work stinks okay that's what god is saying since work is good and i've called you and now you understand that my will for work is that you would enjoy it uh when you do enjoy your work and other people see it what they really see is somebody pointing up to me they see, they see a people that are in love with me as God and not themselves as God. God called us so that we can fight for justice in our land, so that we might take care of his creation, so that we might work and cultivate his creation. That's why God promised Abram land, and that's why he called us in this world, to be seen as Christians living in right relationship to creation. Now, really what this does is it addresses the idea of, like, you don't have to go somewhere to do ministry, you don't have to go somewhere to be a Christian. You don't have to go somewhere to be a missionary. That, in reality, the place that God has called you in at this moment is your mission field. You are called to to uphold and obey God's will where you are, so that people can see uh, you pointing to Him and can see the glory and the freedom that comes with knowing God. Do you believe that you have to go somewhere to be a Christian? Or do you believe that God put you in the world in your own geographic location, in your own dorm, in your own family, uh, so that like Abram, people can see what a transformed life that is called by God looks like? Are you an agent of redemption for creation? Another thing that he promises Abram is a nation. Uh, He promises that a nation is going to come from Abram. Uh, A ton of people who are going to live in the land that God's also going to provide for them. Uh, in other words, God is, 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 get, is going to create a group of people who are dependent on him and are submitted to his will as opposed to their own. Now, I want you to think about what that nation might look like by turning, uh, if you got your Bibles, to Galatians uh, 5. It's in it's verse 19. And it says this. There are two ki- kinds of people that, that God is going to talk about here. The first kind is what the nations of the world are filled with, uh, people who do the works of the flesh. And then the second time, the second kind is what will be uh, true about the people who are in the nation that is supposed to come from Abram. It says in Galatians, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So that's what the world is full of. That is what an unredeemed, uncalled life is full of. Uh, and, and God is, is promising Abram that he's going to, to create these people from him uh, through his generation so that he might uh, show the alternative, show what it looks like to obey and love God as opposed to uh, yourself. He says this, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness gentleness self-control against such things there is no law so in other words god is calling a nation of people from abram that will practice these good qualities that will practice love towards one another that will be joyful that will be peaceful that will be patient in such for an outsider to see that and to be called into that can you imagine how refreshing that would be to be called out of relationships that are that are full of rivalry that are full of fits of anger, full of envy, and relationships that are full of love, joy, peace, and patience. God is calling us to submit our will to him so that we can have these fruits, so that we can bless and take his message of freedom to the world. One of, one of the applications for this point is that we've, we've kind of got to get out. Uh, and what I mean by that is we've got to get out of our circle and begin to see that we are Christians so that God can save the world. We are Christians so that we can be a light post and pointing to him. If, if it's good to have fellowship and friends in US, It really is. If all of your friends are in US, if you don't know anybody outside of it, uh, then you've really got to answer the call here that when God called you, he said go out. He said go make friends. He said go bless the world. He said go serve other people. Uh, God gave you this friendship. He gave you your fellowship so that you would be able to go out and show the rest of the world that there is a place where people live like this, where they are blessed like this, where they have been called like this. All right, so here we are. God called this idiot Abram out of sheer grace. He called Abram to submit his will totally to God, and he did all this because he wants to bless the world. He wants to free it from the chains of sin and distress that we have put it in. And he's going to start with Abram. He really wants to redeem all of our relationships, and he wants to redeem his creation. And that sounds like a pretty good deal. But I want to I know, do you have any idea how much of this actually came true in Abram's lifetime? Do you know how long Abram had to wait before he fathered the son that would eventually father a nation? Do you know how long it took until God made it clear how he was going to bless all the nations of the world through Abram? Do you have any idea how what condition Abram was in when he died. He didn't have a son until he was 100. Uh, At different times in his life, God called Abram to go to war completely outnumbered. He cut off particularly sensitive parts of his body. He cast out one of his sons into the desert. He called him to sacrifice another son on the altar. Abram died and was buried in a cave in a field that he had purchased, which constituted all of the land that he owned on this earth. The Christian life is hard. Uh, And that's what we see through the life of Abraham. That though God calls us graciously, uh, and that God's call is redemption for us, and that though God does bless the world, uh, it's hard to see that sometimes in us. Sometimes God's going to call us to give up everything, lose everything, leave everything, and when everything looks like it's starting to get better, we're going to like die. And that's going to be it. But know this, though, that God did keep his promise to Abraham. God made a nation for him uh, 2,000 years later, and it was God's vehicle of redemption on this earth. God protected the seed of Abraham, the Israelites, and blessed those who blessed them and cursed those who cursed them. 2,000 years after the death of Abraham, God showed the world how he was going to bless all the nations more fully through the Jews in the life of his son, Jesus Christ. He sent his son, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, who is one of the sons of Israel, whose first name was Jacob, whose father's name was Isaac, whose father's name was Abraham. He sent this son who knew no sin and made him to become sin that we might have everlasting life. We're the non-Jews. We're the nations of the world uh, that were blessed because of this promise, because of this call. Uh, And he is faithful to his promise to redeem us. Even though there may come a point where there is one family left on earth with any knowledge of God, we realize that worshiping a God who is passionately committed to keeping his promise, and the promise is to free all creation and relationships from the stain of sin. But there's one thing you, can, you should do uh, after all of this, one point of application. It would be simply this. It's summed up in a song by Flyleaf. I heard it on the car the other day, and the lyrics really struck me. It's sung from God's point of view. And, and what he's. Yeah, here it goes. It says, I love the way that your heart breaks with every injustice and deadly fate. Speaking about Christians, praying it all be new and living like it all depends on you. Here you are down on your knees again, trying to find air to breathe again. Only surrender will help you now. I love you, so see and believe again. We have a God that calls us, uh, that loves us, that wants our hearts to break with injustice and every deadly fate. And at the end of the day, he wants us to look at him and see that he loves us and is faithful to us. Let's pray.